welcome Jared Gardner, Joseph V. Binney, designated professor of English and director of pop culture at the <laughs> University. Thank you for being here, Jared. Thanks for having me, Frederick. Always happy to talk with you and talk about comics. Oh gosh, I'm so glad, I'm so excited. But Jared, I, I kind of know this, but don't, and most, maybe many of our viewers won't, or listeners, how in the heck did you get into comic studies? I mean, you've published these other, these other books, really important books on kind of earlier kind of 19th century magazine culture, all sorts of things. But tell us about your journey, your coming of age in comics. Yeah, I mean, I think probably like a lot of, of us, I'm, you know, I was born in the mid-60s, um, uh, born in Columbus, but I grew up in Brooklyn. And... Um, right next door to me, I had a little bodega, literally next door. Um, it's called Nachos. Um, and that was the kind of beginning for me. I was I was obviously allowed to go on my own. And since it was right next door, and he didn't have a lot of comics, but he had a little spinner rack that had, uh, always had a few comics. They were, uh, they were probably out of date, but I didn't care. Um, this was a time when Marvel Comics was doing some pretty awesome stuff um and comics were cool um or seemed cool to me i wasn't particularly cool myself but um it was my kind of avenue into um a whole world of possibility that uh began to open up the city for me so uh, in part um you know i'm not somebody who necessarily um uh misses the New York of today, but I do kind of miss the New York of the 70s. And so for me, comics became deeply involved with research from the start. So I would pick up like an issue um, of Fantastic Four next door, and suddenly I wanted to know what happened before, or I wanted to know what happened next. And Nacho didn't get things regularly, so he wouldn't necessarily have the next issue. So before I knew it, I was starting my kind of wanderings further from home. I was going up to uh, Court Street to see what they had at their much better stocked uh, spinner racks up at the at the, the uh, news, newspaper store up there. And then within a few years, the first comic book shop started to show up around. Um, there was one in the village. I wish I remembered the name of it. Um, it was on um, uh, West 4th. And it was the first place I was allowed to go to on the subway by myself. I was allowed to go into Manhattan to go to this uh, comic store because it was right next to the to the uh, subway store, subway stop. Um, and that just, that opened up a whole new world, right? Because not only did they have the latest issues, but for the first time I could get back issues. For the first time, I could also see some of what was beginning to happen. By this time, we're into the kind of mid to late 70s and I could begin to see what was happening with alternative comics and underground comics um, and uh, I with every step um, I just found myself wanting to know more um, and then you know I think like a lot of us uh, particularly at this time there wasn't really a comic studies at the time I started going to college there were in retrospect, I now know there were people doing some of this work, but they were not visible yet. They didn't have institutional support of any kind. So when I went to college, I kept up with 
Uh, I didn't keep up with a lot of comics in college. I kept up with Love and Rockets, uh, which I had discovered shortly before college. I kept up with a couple others, but I mostly let comics go because I thought you were supposed to let them go. Um, and uh, in grad school, I kind of kept my secret buying of a few comics here and there. There were some pretty hip little um, comic stores and zine stores in Baltimore. I went to college, to grad school, but you know, I mostly let it go. I boxed up all my comics. I put them in the in the uh, in storage. But I started dra- I dragged them around to every place I moved. I dragged them around to my first teaching job out in Iowa. Um, and, you know, between you and me, off the record, no, I'm just kidding. I know we're recording. Um, I hated my first few years in academia. I really did. I was not happy. Um, I was, something wasn't motivating me. Uh, it wasn't just living in Iowa, because um, actually the students uh, at my first job were great. I mean, I loved learning how to teach with them. I loved the kids. But I was thinking, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Something is missing here. Um, and it was really not until I came back to Columbus in uh, the late 90s that um, I opened those boxes up again. And I went out to see what Columbus had to offer in terms of comics. Now, it goes without saying that the main reason I opened up those boxes is because of the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library, right? So I I didn't take the job because of the Cartoon Library, but I kind of took the job because of the Cartoon Library. Um, something told me, I had a couple of opportunities, um, including going to New York or uh, out to the West Coast, but something told me that I needed some of what Columbus had, both as a city, but also in terms of the, the Cartoon Library, even though I didn't know what it was yet. Um, and almost instantly from the first time I started going to visit the Cartoon Library, I realized this is what I what I needed. This was what was missing. Um, this was work that um, just kind of reca- it rekindled that part of me as a kid that just wanted to learn and understand, to know the history, to see the connections, and to understand the relationship between comics culture and its readers and the city and uh, the the kind of lived lives of of people. And um, Columbus has been a great place to explore it, as you know. It's it's a city with a really great comics culture. Um, it's not at all pretentious about it. Comics as a whole, it's part of why I like them. They're not too pretentious. Um, and it's a place with great comic shops and uh, where comics are treated, you know, as a respectable thing to think about and do. Um, and so... Uh, I, from the start, got the courage to start bringing this stuff out into the open, um, you know, from the cartoon library, but also from my colleagues and from the folks I was meeting in the city. Um, So I kind of came to it late, right? I mean, I had always been interested in popular culture. I'd worked on magazines and and print history, Um, but I had, you know, definitely, I think like a lot of our generation, been a little uh, ashamed, uh, is probably the best word, of my love of comics and had tried to bury it, but it doesn't work. 
they come back. You know, yes, exactly. Um, and we are so happy. I am so happy that you do all the work that you do. It's interesting that the spinner rack for many of us, gosh, someone's got to do a piece on the spinner rack, right? Um, I agree. I mean, that's to me, I try and I, when I talk to my students, I always like to show them a bit about the different ways in which comics were distributed and, and different communities would get their comics in different spaces. Like so big city folks would often get them um, from newsstands. Um, small town folks would often get them from um, little spinner racks that were often in like um, five and dime stores or in in uh, pharmacies often by the soda fountain um, and that that whole world of newsstand distribution is gone right it's it's impossible I think for folks to fully imagine it today um, the direct market um, did a lot of good things. That's the world of comic store distribution. But it did, you know, we also lost something, which is the the hunt around the neighborhood um, in search of the comic that you were missing. Um, once you could, you know, get every back issue you wanted, often at a steep markup, um, something changed um, about the relationship between comics and place. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it, with every change, there, there are pluses and minuses. But the, the spinner rack, which still, of course, you can find in some comic shops, um, is still one of the greatest inventions of all time. Uh, I want one. I, I, I feel like um, it's something that we should own. Do you have a spinner rack? I don't, but you're right. We should both hunt for Yeah, let's, let's yeah. go hunting for one after we're done here. Um, so, Jared, you know, you've kind of already shared the in a way, it's like the heart that beats in your chest kind of passion and impulse for studying comics. Um, but maybe kind of more, I don't know, in a more scholarly way, why research, write, and teach comics and pop culture? Yeah, I mean, it's, so I, I mean, the other thing that happened in my life um, very early after I came to Ohio State is I was asked by, um, uh, the dean, uh, the then dean at, at, at our college, um, back when our university was structured a little bit differently, to help start a, a new popular culture studies program. Um, and um, by this point in the early 2000s, um, this was a, a period in which we're starting to see more and more comics in the classroom. And so, and some of my impulses initially were about I guess I would describe them as a kind of pedagogical accent, right? A desire to um, kind of show um, in, a, in a medium that a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my students already had some comfort with because comics for the most part are narratives. They, um, are, they can be read uh, using many literary tools that we already have at our disposal. Um, although they're best read when we also bring to them visual tools that not, not all English majors have uh, ready at hand. Um, and I really wanted to be able to show kind of clearly, because there was some skepticism when we started up the program, not a lot, but there was some. I wanted to show how amazing uh, this stuff could be and what amazing stuff students could do with it. Um, if you gave them the space and the tools to take this work seriously, not just the kind of literary graphic novels um, like Mouse, for example, but 
also to begin looking at, um, you know, comic strips and to be looking at superhero comics. And uh, for students, one of the things that I really liked about it is I could say to them, look, this stuff is just showing up in the university. There's not a lot of apparatus you got to worry about. You guys get to be the ones to write the, the history of comics, to come up with the theory of comics. You guys really don't have a lot of big gray old men looking down for your shoulder. This is yours. What do you want to do with this medium? Um, so for me, a lot of it initially was pedagogical. I loved the light bulb moments. Um, I love the moments when, you know, in the early years of teaching comics here in the early 2000s, students would often say to me, look, I'm, I, I actually am lying to my parents. I'm not telling them I'm taking a comics class um, because they would be furious. Um, and I love those moments when later in the semester they were like, you know what? I'm going to tell them I'm doing a comics class and I'm going to show them what we're doing. Um, they themselves almost became evangelized. They wanted to be able to say, yeah, this is stuff that's worth studying. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Of course, that's faded away. Like students are not ashamed anymore about taking comics classes. And that's a great thing. So, you know, some of that um, kind of motivation has kind of moved into the background. And over time, um, some of my own kind of passions that keep me invested in the field have changed. So, you know, one of the things you know about me is that I've become um, more and more in recent years interested in uh, the history of comics, uh, thinking about the ways in which um, in particular, um, different changes, technological changes and economic changes in the industry, in readerships, change uh, the ways in which comics uh, make meaning and are uh, differently received by readers. I've become increasingly interested, as I know you are, in kind of comics as a global medium. Um, one of the exciting things about comics is that um, we can kind of recognize the ways in which this medium came of age all around the world and expresses both commonalities and really exciting differences um, in terms of the way the grammar developed, in terms of the way the comics reflect some of the, the kind of fundamental kind of fears and fantasies of the different cultures in which they grew up. Um, there's almost no part of the world that doesn't have a comics culture. Um, I'm pretty sure there's not a big Antarctic comics culture yet, but it's coming because pretty soon we'll all be living there. Um, so, you know, it's for me, it's just, it, there's never, you never run out of questions to ask. You never run out of material. You never run out of things to think about. I, I know that when my career is over, I will have only scratched a tiny bit of what there is to explore in comics. So you've already um, shared like a good kind of uh, chunk, say, of the vision of the Jared Gardner vision, the kind of the archival impulse, the pauses to really tease out technologies and shifts in socioeconomics and the kind of regional variations, as well as the kind of excitement around the global uh, comics itself as a kind of planetary republic. Is there... Is yeah. In a kind of elevator pitch, what is the Gardner vision and approach? I mean, what would you, how would you sell this to a Hollywood director? Yeah, I mean, the thing, I'll, I'll be really honest here, and this is something um, 
I sometimes joke uh, about this to my students when when um, we talk a little bit about methodologies and um, you know some of the kind of fundamental like what I grew up just to back up a second I, when I came of age um, in grad school in uh, the kind of late 80s this was the age of high theory everybody had to be something you had to be a deconstructionist or you could become a, a one of these upstart new historicists everybody had to have a banner um, and I hated it, right? That was not for me. Um, I've never been comfortable um, kind of sticking with one methodology. Um, and part of why I love comics is, and the study of comics is that I think they require so many tools and tool sets um, that comic studies has so far not been overly kind of dominated by methodology wars because I don't think anybody believes there's one methodological approach that will work. Um, in the end, if I have a methodology, it really comes down to something fundamental and almost primal, right? Almost what got me started with comics in the first place. I, I jokingly call it the new stuffism. Um, that is, I look for cool stuff and things that I think are just fascinating and I want to learn everything about. And I believe in my heart that if you are true to what you find interesting, and you learn everything you can about it so that you understand what it is that gets you so excited about it. And you share that stuff with other people, they're going to be interested too. Um, and I have, um, you know, I mostly kind of started joking about it as a way of trying to ease the anxiety of some of my grad students who worry like they don't have a clear methodology to kind of, you know, label themselves with. Um, but I think you know, for a lot of us, particularly those of us who came of, of age as professors after the theory wars started to recede, you know, the glorious thing about the 21st century in academia is that we can borrow from everything. And there is no medium that requires us to borrow from more theories, more methods, more disciplines, even disciplines that never historically talked to each other in the academy before, like art and literature they have they were divided from 18th century on in the university and they can't be, you can't separate them so for me it's it's really about starting always with passion um, being excited about something trusting your own pulse and then finding all the tools you need to learn everything you can and then sharing it um, and it's it's not a sophisticated uh, methodology doesn't make for a great elevator pitch, but I, for me, it has made for an amazing last 20 years. Um, and, and it's pretty much what I intend to do for the next 20 years is keep looking after and searching for cool stuff and then figuring out what I need to learn. Um, and it often does mean starting over, learning new methods. Like lately, I've had to I'm trying to learn about the prehistory of comics. What was cartooning before comics? Um, and that's required me to learn about art history, about uh, early print and media history, um, about a lot of stuff out of my comfort zone in the United States. Um, but I also, like, that's, that's fun, right? That's why I'm in it, is to learn new stuff so that maybe one day I can teach somebody something new and i for me i love i love that process um and 
I'm so, I love it so much. I, I resist anything that might, even if it would make me more productive, that might kind of restrict the kinds of questions uh, I might ask. So it's a lousy elevator pitch. I apologize. Well, no, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to like, you're, I'm reaching out to your arm right now. You're pulling me up. I'm on your bandwagon of stuffism. I think that's a really. Stuffism. Exactly. Yes. So stuffism, tell us, tell us something, maybe a, a surprising moment in this incredible book that you published, Projections, Comics, and the History of 21st Century Storytelling. You know, uh, something that really like blew your mind uh, when you were kind of going back and doing your work to really kind of understand better this kind of cross-fusion, transtextual growth of comics and other yeah. uh, storytelling forms. Yeah, I mean, for the, I think probably the, the biggest discovery, the thing that really opened up for me was the, the realization in doing this work. I, like a lot of us, um, I, I, this was published in, I should know what year it was published, 2012, um, sometime around then. Um, and I'd been working on it for, for a few years before that. So this was, as you, as, as you know, I think sometimes our students have a hard time visualizing this because they grew up in some sense after the, some of the digital bloom was already off the rose. But in the, in the early 2000s, right, there was a lot of excitement, um, you know, and our friend Henry Jenkins was, a, I think, a really articulate uh, kind of prophet of that excitement at the time for all the ways in which the digital seemed to be opening up new ways of reading, new ways of thinking, changing film in, in really exciting ways, um, and thinking about how um, DVD and uh, the, the future of, of storytelling in the 21st century and audiences' interactions with it was going to be incredibly and excitingly new. I think all of us have come to have some realizations that there's, you know, a dark corporate side to a lot of this and ways in which some of those, those kind of utopian visions that a lot of us had at the time might not be entirely um, realized under our current uh, conditions. But at the time when I first started working on it, I wanted to begin just by thinking about like, is there any kind of prehistory for some of this stuff? Um, and I, I knew already from some other scholarship that there was obviously some prehistory in some of the, the pre-narrative cinema. Um, several scholars, Tom Gunning and others, had written about um, the very different ways in which in kind of what used to be called primitive cinema, audiences interact with, interacted with film in, in very different ways than we think of in the classical age and in ways that seeming, seemed to be reactivated in the early 21st century. Um, so as I kind of dove in looking at kind of what was happening in comics around the same time at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, I began to realize, um, and this was my biggest surprise, um, and it ended up motivating a lot of the book that followed, um, I began to realize that actually a lot of what we have always thought was unique to um, primitive film or pre-narrative film uh, was actually stuff that was coming to film from comics, that comics were actually leading the way in terms of of creating um, a much more what we would call interactive readership, 
uh, creating new forms of seriality, um, new um, uh, collaborative relationships between um, creators and readers, um, and kind of inventing a kind of vision of, of mass media at its best um, or at its most um, optimistic. Um, and early film learned a ton from comics. Comics were figuring stuff out faster. Um, they didn't have as many of the technological obstacles as early film. Um, and so a lot of the first half of the book is about kind of the ways in which comics and film are kind of born together and then begin to go in separate directions only to come back together in our own time, right? As we see today and as, as you write about um, uh, so beautifully, um, but to kind of think about that kind of genome, which where before they kind of begin to split and run on parallel tracks, um, something really exciting is kind of happening at that turn of the century moment. Um, and some of that is just my impulse that anytime I'm told or, or I find myself saying, this is new and unprecedented history, I have this contrarian impulse in myself to always say, wait, is that true? I know I just said it, but is that? is this entirely new? And this book was in part an attempt to say, not entirely new. Um, and we can probably learn something about the future um, or about the future we want in terms of narrative uh, by looking back at some of those possibilities that were maybe kind of shut off to the side uh, when uh, comics and film kind of split apart and film began to take uh, the driver's seat in terms of being the most important media of the 20th century. Um, today, they're hand in glove. And so um, I think it's an exciting time still um, to imagine all kinds of new possibilities. Um, and you know, that's one of the things that I know is, is kind of so exciting about the class you teach on comics and film is thinking about um, some of those uh, possibilities that emerge when um, the two begin to collaborate and cooperate um, increasingly even, oh, I don't want to say as equals, um, because in terms of economic power, there's obviously some big differences. Um, but I would say, I mean, tell me if you agree, but I think today there is a recognition in Hollywood that much of the best storytelling and the, that's the kind of greatest visionaries in terms of narrative are not showing up in the Hollywood lot. They're kind of, they're there behind their drawing boards and they're, they're writing and drawing comics. And that's part of why they're, they're kind of so eagerly um, circling around comics right now is because there's a sense that something's happening in terms of the kinds of storytelling that happens in comics and the kinds of people who are drawn to telling stories in comics that is unique and, and really urgently needed in this time. Um, no, I, I totally agree with you, Jared. Um, we're going to talk about your kind of always already transmedia in just a minute, but um, before we go there, I want to I take us to a really important driving scholarly interest of yours, which is the comic strip, something that still is very understudied within comic studies. Yeah, really so, is. Well, why comic strips, Jared? Yeah, I mean, again, some of this is the is really the a kind of love letter to the Billy Ireland, right? So 
you know, our collections here are vast and, and rich, but our, the, the real strength of the collection at the Billy Ireland um, is in newspaper comics, editorial comics and the comic strips. And so for me, um, the experience of uh, sitting there as I was kind of training myself into um, some of uh, the kind of history of American comics before I was born, um, and the kind of revelation, which I knew and yet didn't know at all, of how incredibly important newspaper comics were in uh, American daily life, um, in the, particularly the first half of the 20th century. Um, I would just get from them, I would say, can I give me every single, well, you have Skippy up there, every single Skippy for 1932. And I would sit there. Um, after classes, and I would sit in their reading room, and I would just read every Skippy for the year. Um, obviously not the way Skippy was intended to be read, but um, an amazing experience um, that uh, to kind of spend time with material that would have been lost, um, should have been lost to history, if not for this crazy, brilliant collector named Bill Blackbeard, who drove around the country grabbing all the newspapers he could find that were about to be thrown out by libraries um, and uh, collected all this material that later made its way to the Billy Ireland. So I wanted to learn about newspaper comics because I realized that by the time I came of age, they were already, uh, you know, they were great comics. And obviously in the 70s and 80s and 90s, um, we had some of the greatest comics of all time, you know, Doonesbury and Boondocks and Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, but, you know, it was also newspaper comics were already a diminished thing. They were kind of small already, even by the even by the 80s and 90s. They've gotten smaller. Um, newspapers were a smaller thing. Um, you know, we, we've seen them in our lifetimes kind of really become less of a driving force in, in public life. So I wanted to really understand what was life like before. Um, and in doing so, I began to discover um, some really remarkable stuff that was happening in newspaper comics. Um, not just like, this is a brilliant comic, we should, um, we should recover it because it is, it is worthy, although certainly there's that, but also the realization that in some of these comics, they were doing really sophisticated and ambitious things in terms of, of providing spaces and places for audiences to feel invested and involved uh, in comics. So one of my favorites is a comic that's largely forgotten today by a guy named Sidney Smith called The Gumps. And he would regularly invite his readers. He would set up these huge dramas like of, you know, um, very almost Victorian kind of melodramas um, of, you know, with villainous people with mustaches and and people who were being uh, taken advantage of by by evil uh, and um, greedy uh, corporate interests, and then he would say to his readers, "How should this end?" Right? He would encourage them and invite them to literally write in with their opinions. Should uh, Uncle Bim marry the evil widow Xander? And he would literally say to the readers, tell me what, what you think should happen. Um, and they would write in and he would, for the most part, kind of follow what they suggested and made them feel very much like this was as much their strip as it was his. Um, and then in 1929, he, um, he did the, the 
the greatest sin, but also the greatest achievement in comics history, I think. He killed off the first major character in comics. Um, he killed off um, a character named Mary Gold. Um, we take for granted that characters in comics can die, but he was the first one to do it. And it created such an outpouring of grief and shock that uh, trading floors had to be shut down, um, that uh, newspapers were deluged with flowers from mourners. Um, and it wasn't, as I, I write about a little bit of this in projections, like it wasn't like these people didn't know that Mary Gold was a fictional character. It was that Sidney Smith, and he understood this when he made the decision to break their hearts. Sidney Smith had made these characters who the people lived with every day for years and years from you know 1917 uh, until his death in 1934. They lived with them every day. He had made them part of their family, part of the rhythms of everyday life. And so the loss of these characters was a, a loss of somebody who was intimately dear to them. Um, and he really, he got it. He got something about what could happen with fandom and audiences and interaction and investments in the 20th century that was new. Um, and I think, you know, he was literally kind of theorizing as he went, he was experimenting. Um, and he was, in a sense, um, kind of showing to readers and fellow cartoonists the possibilities of this new narrative form, what I call open-ended seriality which really didn't exist before newspaper comic strips. There really was obviously in oral traditions, um, there's examples of it, but in kind of in modern print history, there really is no example of a serial narrative that by its definition was built to potentially go on forever. Dickens, Stowe, they, they knew they had to end their books to sell them as books. So, they were, you know, they might have felt open-ended, but they never were. The Gumps, if he hadn't wrapped his new Rolls Royce around a, a lamppost, could have gone on forever, right? Um, if he could have lived forever. Um, and so part of what, for me, as I began to get more interested in seriality um, and uh, an interest that took me in, in other directions, um, in addition to comics, was the realization that, the, the kind of seriality that we see explored in, in soap operas, in, in serial radio, and um, in um, you know, a lot of, of television and internet culture, even in the Marvel Cinematic Universe today, um, the idea of a serial arc that could potentially theoretically never end um, is an invention of the newspaper comic strips. So I needed to understand it and um, in the process, I became a huge fan, um, a fan of many strips, including uh, this one that you have up here, Percy Crosby's Skippy, which um, I fell in love with, um, even though the cartoonist himself um, uh, had a, a tragic life and by all accounts was a very difficult person. Um, uh, I fell in love with the strip, uh, a strip that was hugely influential on cartoonists like Charles Schultz um, and Walt Kelly of Pogo, kind of post-war comics that really helped define what comics would look like in the second half of the 20th century. His work had been lost largely because he himself um, was institutionalized against his will. 
um, and um, was locked up in legal battles with Skippy Peanut Butter um, and ultimately kind of was forgotten to comics history. So I became interested both in his life and career, his incredible celebrity and his incredible fall from grace, um, but also in sharing this, I think, one of the greatest kids comics of all time um, with uh, folks. And so I worked with my good friend and the brilliant um, and pioneering editor, uh, Dean Mullaney, um, uh, to kind of put forward four uh, volumes of the complete Skippy um, really in the best years of this strip before, um, you know, alcoholism and uh, and some mental health challenges began to diminish the, the real strength of the strip. Uh, and it was a blast. I loved working on it. I, I loved that work. I would, um, yeah. I think the golden age of newspaper comic strip reprints is kind of coming to an end. Yeah. Uh, most of the greatest strips of the past have been reprinted and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, but I, it's really great work to do. And I, I love editing. In some sense, part of what I began to realize is I love putting myself in the background as much as possible um, and putting the comics forward. Um, and some of that led me towards my growing interest in curating and, and editing as well. You know, uh, so yeah, we have, that's a great also example of stuffism in action. Um, yeah. So why... Tell Jared, in a kind of a nutshell, because there's a big history here, why do you think that your position that comics has always already been transmedial um, had a little bit of pushback, a little bit of controversy? Um, uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I mean, for me, uh, you know, and I think both you and I share some kind of skepticism about the very concept of transmediality. Um, is that fair to say? Um, and, um, you know, my, again, it's part of it is, comes from um, uh, that, that contrarian impulse in me and that historicizing impulse in me. Um, you know, when The Matrix uh, came out, um, uh, you know, one of the, kind of claims that was made about the matrix by um, Henry Jenkins and others, and it was an important claim, um, was that it was an example of something profoundly new, which is the idea of a story that was being told across different media. Um, and so, you know, for, um, although I think not everybody remembers it today, but the matrix, as it was being told, it was, it was obviously films, it was a trilogy, but there was also comics uh, that the Wachowski siblings um, oversaw. Um, there were video games that they were also involved with, and there were also an animation. So it was being told across different media um, and by kind of one uh, central set of creators to some degree. It's a fairly unique experiment in many ways. Um, there's um, not too many places where you can find exactly that much control. And so as Henry Jenkins um, kind of first uh, put forward the idea of transmediality, um, he was really obviously very interested in focusing on these kind of late 20th, early 21st century examples. Um, but, you know, it's it, uh, my, again, partly just because of where I've spent much of my last um, uh, decades in the archives, um, I could not help but think about uh, immediately all the ways in which comics have always had a transmedial tendency. Um, and probably the, the best example of it in comic book 
uh, history is Superman, which, as you know, um, was almost instantly turned from a comic book where it began into a newspaper comic um, one year later into a radio serial one year later. Um, they were also uh, Fleischer Brothers Animation a few years after that, and then a, a television show. Um, and very quickly, very early on, um, certain elements of what we think of as the canon of Superman um, begin to move across media. So Kryptonite shows up in the radio broadcast uh, and the, the kind of full story of what happens to Krypton and the name of Clark Kent's uh, uh, Kryptonite parents first shows up in the newspaper strip. And they all kind of get to use the, the kind of lingo of fandom. They get retconned back into the uh, comic book um, canon uh, very quickly um, and fairly effortlessly. Uh, and that kind of impulse, comics impulse towards adaptation, that's been there from the start, right? So the very first comics, comic that is adapted faithfully into a film, um, I always say this, and I always preface it with, if anybody can prove me wrong, please do. Um, but the very first one that I've been able to discover, and so far um, it's the undisputed champion, but there may still emerge an earlier one, is um, a film uh, that came out of Edison Studios in 1903 um, that was a, a film of Happy Hooligan, a comic strip by um, Frederick Burr Opper, uh, a very faithful adaptation of a 1902 comic strip that he had published on Sunday. Um, that impulse to start um, adapting and uh, revising and uh, playing back and forth across media and comics is something that's there from the very start. Um, and I, I think there are good reasons why, um, you know, we want to make, we want to make a distinction between some of these examples of, of transmediality in, let's say, Superman. So one big difference with what Henry Jenkins would describe is there is no clear central Wachowski siblings. It's almost immediately being adapted by different people. Um, and then it's the editors back at what would become DC who are making the decisions about how to retcon. Um, and so obviously there is there are some fundamental differences, but if transmediality is going to mean anything, it can't just mean the matrix because then it's just one thing. Um, and so if you're looking for examples where really one creator or set of creators had anything resembling true control over the whole operation, you're going to find very, almost no other examples out there. In which case, I think the kind of historical transmediality that we see comics experimenting with from the start um, is something we need to take seriously, not to say it's identical, because I think the digital age does change things, but to recognize that uh, we need to always be attentive to the lessons of the past and the experiments of the past if we're going to truly understand uh, what's happening in the present. And quite honestly, if we're going to get the stories we deserve uh, and the stories we want, we need to find out where and why the storytelling of the past um, was was thwarted in its ambitions or or went wrong. Um, so I, I believe, you know, in part as a fan, I'm a fan first. I think most of us who work in these areas are fans first. Um, part of it for me is always about wanting 
storytelling to keep getting better, wanting popular storytelling and popular culture to keep being better, more exciting, more inclusive, more flexible, um, more full of surprises, um, and, and able to satisfy and represent more audiences. Um, and so I think history really is important to help us understand how to build and encourage and support the kind of media we want in the future. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy with, I've been pushed back increasingly on a lot of definitions. And I like being pushed back on because it keeps me honest. It forces me to defend myself, but it also forces me to have to admit when I'm wrong. And I'm wrong a lot. Um, I'm not a, I don't like to be polemical or, or combative, but I do like um, to try things out and then see what, my colleagues in the field think works and doesn't work. Um, and a lot of my, I, the, the book I'm working on now is going to cause even more pushback, I fear. Um, but that's okay. Um, it should, we should be, I think, always trying to push the field um, in new directions. And if comic studies has one fault, as Mark Singer has kind of suggested um, in the book that was published in your series, it's that sometimes we want to be a little too nice um, and a little too much in uniform agreement. And that, by definition, prevents any field from um, either defending its most important claims or revising them as necessary. And we'll become static and boring and sophomoric if we don't keep taking risks. I'm not a big risk taker by nature, but comic studies makes me want to take risks because I love it. Um, and I want it to get better, as Mark suggests. Jared, um, I know you're doing a critical edition on Will Eisner for Norton, but also <laughs> I do know that you're working on comics and board games. Um, what's the what's the kind of why comics and board games? So, I mean, I I for me, any theory I do with comics tends to come out of history and the archives, um, and so I've been pursuing for the last couple of years, and it's still a bit of a mess, I confess, but I've been pursuing um, a kind of understanding of the history of cartooning before comics. So I think of, in my definition, and again, this is not agreed upon by many people, um, but I kind of see um, uh, the idea of, of comics and, the cartoon, and cartooning as we understand it really begins to take shape around the middle of the 19th century. Um, it's the first time for example, we have the use of the term cartoonist. Uh, before that, people were caricaturists. Um, but the, the art form is continuous. Um, the definition of uh, the, the practice changes. Um, so I began to become interested in understanding about the, the long history of cartooning before comics as a form begin to take shape in, in their modern form. And that took me way back into the 17th century, into Bologna, Italy. Um, and primarily, I've been obsessed with this one guy uh, named Mitelli, who was um, a pioneering caricaturist in Bologna, um, but who also um, uh, was uh, one of the really first board game designers. Um, in the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century, he was uh, uh, spent most of his final years designing board games. Now, I'm using the term anachronistically. These were unprinted. They were really prints. They were not obviously on boards. 
uh, but they were sold at his print shop and they were designed to be taken to taverns to play. Um, and I became suddenly fascinated with thinking about the relationship between cartooning and games um, and tracing out that history um, and thinking about it. Um, what is it that uh, kind of attracted not only Mattelli, but others I've discovered since to kind of thinking about the relationships between um, uh, games of a certain kind, uh, particularly the kind of track games or board games in which uh, kind of narrative is played out on a printed piece of paper. Here we might think about the game of life or, or Candyland that all of us grew up with. Um, and uh, the kind of narrative experiments with uh, what we would come to call comics that were taking place. And so, you know, what happens for me at a certain point is a historical kind of insight becomes a theoretical question, which is thinking about the, the game, uh, the gameishness of comics, um, the ways in which um, all comics, I think, contain in their genome certain elements of uh, the game. They require a certain um, level of play. Um, what we often, uh, I think, in a way I kind of want to push back on, um, this is probably one of the places that I may um, get myself in some trouble, If, uh, but I'm not ready to face that trouble just yet because I'm still provisional. Um, a lot of what we call closure, um, following from Scott McCloud, um, a lot of what we think of as uh, the ways in which uh, readers um, fill in the gaps between panels, for example, and do the cognitive work of, of mapping out time and space, um, I think can also be um, usefully theorized through a different lens, which is the lens of, of gaming and game theory um, and, uh, and play um, and thinking about the ludic in uh, the act of reading comics and engaging with comics has set my head off in a whole new crazy direction. And mostly what I've been doing lately is just collecting examples of comics that are um, really pushing um, uh, towards um, places where we can see uh, the kind of both the game board and the comic at the same time. Um, comics like Meanwhile, some of, of um, uh, the experiments of Chris Ware are some good starting points. And then to back up from there and think about how might we see places of play in all of comics um, or in as a kind of one of the kind of aspects of comics reading and comics um, loving that maybe we haven't fully begun to um, pay uh, proper respect to partly because we tend to be embarrassed by play right we think of play as childish stuff um, and that too is beginning to change as we have video game studies and game studies and maybe it's time to admit that part of what we love about comics is the space of play, imaginative play that they open up. Um, uh, and um, so it's, yeah, board game history is a new field for me, um, but it's, I've always loved board games. So it's been kind of fun to think through and it gives me excuse to buy a lot of stuff on eBay. <laughs> and yes, we need more of those excuses, right? Uh, yes. So, Okay, Jared, what is a trademark Jared Gardner classroom method for bringing comics, comic book films into, into the classroom space? Well, as you can already tell, my, my weakness is I get super excited about stuff and I talk too much. Um, 
so one of the ways I have to militate against that in the classroom is um, by um, kind of uh, forcing myself to cons to kind of let the, the, the work do the talking as much as possible. And that requires often setting up um, fairly um, uh, elaborate um, uh, PowerPoints and uh, often interactive ones that give uh, the students uh, the opportunity to do the reading. Um, my excitement is often can be counterproductive in the classroom. Um, I, I noticed pretty early on as a teacher that when I get really passionate about stuff, the students want to participate in that passion, but my excitement made, makes it hard sometimes for me to, well, shut up and give them space to participate. So um, I have to I have to plan, um, and I have to plan literally not what to say, but when to stop talking. Um, and um, that's been it's you know it's it's actually required some some relearning. Fortunately, my my parents, uh, my mother was uh, until she retired a few years ago, an art history teacher, um, and I used to. Um, make extra money by um, organizing her slides for her for her classes she's very disorganized person even more than me so it was good it was a good for pocket money or comic money um and i learned a lot you know watching her teach watching how somebody who's coming out of a visual medium um kind of teaches and uses um uh, the visual text as a way to um uh kind of do work that words can't do um, in order for the student to begin to realize uh, that comics are more than just text. They're more than just plots. Um, and that uh, they have, because this generation is so visually literate, they already have, even if they don't know the right terms, um, they already have the skills to see things in visual text. Um, that are often far beyond, I think, what I can see. Um, I've always been blown away by how um, insightful uh, my students are into uh, the visual. And so the more I stop talking and the more I just kind of give them the space to explore images or panels or pages um, and, and let them take the lead, uh, the more we learn together. Um, and that's been the greatest thing about teaching pop culture in general is that it is, I mean, it is a, a wonderful, blissful lesson in uh, humility um, because every single time I teach a comic I think I know inside and out, my students, even the, in the intro class, will find something. I taught Mouse for the hundredth time, no doubt, to a, a class of intro students most of whom had never read comics before. And they saw things that just blew my mind. Like I had never seen these. This is a text that I always think, oh, I must be tired of teaching this by now. Um, and I often even go into class, I'm like, I don't want to teach this again. I, I know this text already. And then every time the students see something that changes my entire perspective on the comic. Um, and I, I love that, right? I mean, I love that there's, there are ways in which I have to recognize for a number of reasons, they can see things, some things 
better than I can. They can do things in the pop culture classroom and the visual classroom better than I can. Um, and that helps override my natural tendency, which is to talk. Um, and while the talking may come out of excitement and passion, um, it also can be a really destructive force in the visual culture classroom because it's, I feel like in the end, that tendency is taking away their time to be the ones making the discoveries. Um, and uh, for me, it feels also like incredibly exciting to be reminded. Um, and it's probably really for me, because I, I don't know about you, but I grew up under the, the lecture model. Um, we were mostly talked to and then, you know, have some discussion, a few questions. And I slip into that pretty well. I'm kind of pretty comfortable with that model myself. I think it has value. I really do. I'm not against lecturing. I like lecturing, um, particularly about history or things that I shouldn't expect the students to know or want to learn on their own. Um, but when it comes to wanting them to see what comics can do, no amount of lecturing by itself is going to do it. I have to... Uh, learn how to let the images present themselves to the student to give them the tools they need and then to set them loose. Um, and uh, you're going to be teaching the intro class in the fall. You're going to love it because um, it's small enough that you can really do that in a way that in some of our larger classes, it's, it's harder, right? The thing about you that always blows my mind is you can do that even in a class of 150. I can't. I get scared. I'm too many people. I just... I talk. Um, I try, but it's not it's not my forte. But um, the the real strength of comics is comics are comics will teach every reader how to read them if they make themselves available to it. They don't, in a sense, what they need to learn is how to make themselves available to the early literacy experience, the new literacy experience that is every new comic. And once they do that, once they realize that the comic will teach them, the comic will give them what they need if they uh, read it carefully, um, then they become very quickly masterful readers. Um, and, um, you know, I think I still have a lot to learn as a teacher of comics and visual culture, but, um, you know, that's also part of it. I said my early years, I thought I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to be so bored. Now I'm like, I'm just learning how to do this right now. Um, and I'm actually panicking in the other direction. Will I have enough time in my teaching career to, to master this? No, the answer is probably not, uh, but that's okay. Like I know now for sure I'll never get bored. Jared, let me uh, take us into the archive because I know you do that with your students, um, but the archive has made vital and alive through your curating work. Um, drawing blood is a good example. Tell us like how this is a learning by other means, right? Yeah, I mean, it's part of why I love curating comes back to what I was just talking about. It's really, and I, I've been really blessed. I had two brilliant um, uh, uh, curators who have kind of guided me in the art form and um, uh, even before I started curating uh, the founding curator of the Billy Ireland Lucy Caswell um, uh, kind of let me look over her shoulder while she was doing some of her curatorial work 
Uh, but I've worked very closely with the, the current head of the library, Jenny Robb, and with the associate curator, um, uh, Caitlin McGurk. And they have really been very patient and generous in terms of teaching me about curating over the last several years. Um, so Drawing Blood was actually my very first solo curated show. Um, everything up till then, including um, the two uh, that are down there, Looking Backwards, Looking Forwards, and Cartoon Couture were, were ones that I co-curated with them so that I could learn from them. Um, and the one thing that they've always um, kind of taught me along the way is one, a, a show, an exhibition needs to tell a story. Um, uh, but the story should be a story that um, the, the viewer ultimately arrives at on their own at the end. Like you need to know what the story is, but you also need to make it so that the viewer is going to begin to see that story assemble itself for themselves. Um, and curating, of course, is about putting ourselves in the background. Um, and uh, you mean you've got a chance to do this yourself. It's it's sometimes hard for us, right? I don't know about you, but like I like to write a lot, and with labels, you can only write a little bit. Um, and that's been an amazing discipline for me. Um, thinking about how to write for, you know, imagining a kind of interested high school student who's going to come into this exhibition, giving them enough information that they can then make the discoveries on their own. Um, I think I've become a better teacher in recent years because of curating. Um, I know I've become a better writer because of curating, because it's forced me to learn how to write more clearly, more, more accessibly, with less jargon, um, and to um, really want to um, uh, kind of celebrate um, the, the kind of possibilities of um, kind of sharing knowledge without showing off. Um, so much of my grad school training in the 80s and 90s was about showing off, right? Teaching us how to be intimidating, how to, how to um, you know, stake claims, how to tear down opponents. It was, it was like armed combat. Um, and it was about ego and self-promotion. And curating is the opposite of that. Um, and I, I love it. In some ways, for me, it's a chance to really just celebrate comics and let the comics do the work. Um, and again, I really believe comics, if, if we can get them in the right setting, if we can give them the right context, comics will teach everybody how to read them. Um, our jobs, I think, are in part just to kind of kind of clear away some of the detritus to let them kind of speak for themselves. Yeah, and uh, I, I love the idea too that, I mean, you yourself curate the art on your own body, which tells it's... Uh, it, <laughs> right? I do have a fair amount of that, yes. Yeah. Um, um, including my, my Swamp Thing here. See, yes, this is my yes I know you have Swamp Thing and you've written yes. about that. Um, <laughs> um, so we've talked about the Will Eisner project where you're, you're curate your real deep sort of passion for curating your um, continued work in sort of developing stuffism. Is there something else that we need to kind of be reminded of in your yeah, work? I, the only last thing is there's a, there's a, a monograph that's kind of half finished. That is a love letter to um, the graphic medicine movement that I, I need to get finished. Um, I was really sick for several years. Um, um, and, you know, at times, not sure if I was able to continue my career. 
And the discovery of the, the graphic medicine group, um, which is a kind of interdisciplinary group of, of um, healthcare providers and cartoonists and, and comic scholars and patients um, that have a conference every year. And um, I highly recommend their website, uh, graphicmedicine.com. Um, they um, really provided me with um, lenses by which to understand my, my own illness um, and my own challenges with, um, with the healthcare industry. Um, they were very supportive uh, of me and um, the exhibition Drawing Blood is in part a kind of thank you uh, to them. Um, and um, many members of that group um, contributed art and, and uh, support uh, for that exhibition. Um, and so I've, I've been, uh, I've had a project that's probably a little more personal than I usually do. Um, where which does involve a little bit of autobiography, um, something that is, I've always shied away from, just mostly out of cowardice, not out of anything else. Um, but this is a project thinking about time um, and the experience of illness um, and the ways in which comics in particular um, are able to represent um, alternate modes of time and experiencing time um, during illness um, and during, um, not just for patients, but also for caregivers um, and for families who are affected by illness. So it's, it's not, a, I don't think it'll be a long book, but it's, it's partly just because it's so personal and frankly, partly because I've been healthier lately. I've just kind of put it to the side. Um, there's something about illness. I don't know if you feel this. There's an amnesia that sets in when you're healthier. Um, and you can start to forget, um, which is actually part of what my book's about. Uh, but I'm also right now in a period of, of, of amnesia. Um, so I feel a little distant from um, some of the ways in which my brain was working when I was working, writing about this stuff um, from, a, a, from within the, the kingdom of the ill, to use uh, Susan Sontag's term. Um, the good news is with chronic illness, you know it'll come back. So um it when it does um i i will finish up that project and um uh share it i um i i hope um it might find a home with the really remarkable series that penn state's been doing on of publishing both um uh, memoirs graphic memoirs and scholarship in the field of graphic medicine um as far as i know penn state and your series at ohio state are two of the only places that are uh, academic publishers that are doing original graphic narrative. And I, I think it's so great. Um, I'm really grateful to you and to them for um, finding new venues for uh, these important works. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, in a nutshell, Jared, what, what is, like, what's on your bedstand right now? What are you reading that's exciting to you, I guess is another way to ask, ask this question. Yeah, in uh, in comics or in comic studies. In both, um, let's say both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I I will um, most a lot of what I I'm very I'm lucky in that um, comic studies are very small field, so um, it's still relatively small. It's getting bigger all the time, so I get to read a lot of manuscripts um, uh, for publishers that are early on um, and I've read a couple of very good ones uh, recently that I'm excited about um, including one um, that's coming out from University of Chicago about um, that used the Freedom of Information Act to 
um, uh, discover uh, that the, the kind of intricacies and intimacies between the national security state and the comics industry between World War II. Stuff we always kind of suspected, but it's actually turns out they were very much in bed together in very concrete ways. So again, my kind of historicist, um, I, I'm often attracted to historicist work um, and um, work about the early comics industry um, and anything that attempts to kind of unsettle or discomfit some of the truisms that we used to just pass down um, generation to generation without double checking them. Um, I think there's a lot of revisiting comics history that needs to be done. Um, we have a we had a tendency uh, over the earlier generations to uh, kind of cut and paste some of our truisms about comics history. So I'm deeply excited about anything that, um, you know, offers us some, some new insights. Um, there's a, a, a new collection that just came out of um, uh, uh, University of, of Mississippi Press on uh, disability in comics. Um, uh, by um, it's edited by Jose Alanis and um, one of the members of the graphic medicine uh, group. And uh, this, I've only halfway through it, but the stuff in there has been great. I'm really excited to um, kind of finish it up and, and review that. Um, in the world of comics, um, I read a lot. Um, and it's my bedside is just a kind of mass of, of stuff. It's a, I used to try and keep up with everything, but that's impossible today. Um, there's, um, I think, you know, there's really exciting stuff happening um, in um, some of the creator owned comics. I think a lot of my passion lately has been in some of the creator owned comics coming out of image and smaller independent uh, publishers. I love serial storytelling, so I'm drawn to anything that's serial. Um, I've been fairly bored with a lot of superhero comics lately, but that always for me goes in cycles. Like I'll go through periods where I'm like, I'm bored of superheroes. And then next thing I know, I'm like obsessively catching up with superheroes. So I don't worry too much about it because um, I know they, they always come back. Um, but there there's not been much I've been following lately in superhero comics. I've tended to be drawn more towards some of the standalone superhero um, uh, story arcs like Miracle Man have come out in recent years, but none of the big franchises have done a lot for me lately. Do you have any big superheroes you're following? You know, just the kind of usual Miles and Ironheart, yeah. and, you know, the, the fun kind of, uh, the, 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 the vitality in superhero comics is, I think, in the coming of age and in the diverse, so-called diversity yeah, world. I agree. And, and the comics that aren't under the thumb of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, yeah. you know, I mean, Ms. Marvel is starting to come under the thumb of the, of the MCU, but um, it was an amazing, exciting run um, that uh, G. Willow Wilson had with that um, for, a, for a, a long time. Squirrel Girl was a blast. I mean, there's, there's good stuff, but I find that um, my, you know, one of my concerns is that with the rise of Disney+, Plus, it means that more and more of these properties are going to become micromanaged and lose some of their spontaneity and fun. Right, yeah. Jared Gardner... Um you have gifted us so much knowledge. Thank you for sharing this journey with us, Jared. Thank you. Thanks for letting me blab. <laughs>
No, it's amazing, really amazing. Um, I've learned so much and I know others will as well. So thank you, Jared, and um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Frederick. Have a great day. Are you ready to